please take a moment right now to hit like, subscribe, and share. Especially share. That's the big one. Film historians, I'm Derek and I love old movies. We've got Sam the sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 50. More like episode nifty. You haven't done that in a long time. I know. I, I was thinking I should do it more. I'm thinking not. Okay. Well, July is continuing and we have our final listener request for this month. And we're super excited about this one. We are. We've been wanting to do another film by the Marx Brothers for a while, mm -hmm. and once a request came in for us to do any Marx Brothers movie, we knew we had to do this. It's like, it was our chance. For sure. So we are coming out hard, going with 1935's A Night at the Opera, truly a classic among their films. Let's not waste a minute. Let's do business and get on with things. After you. So, business number one, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm. We love watching these films and chatting about them for you. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And also, we really like hearing from you. So if you ever have an idea or a suggestion for us, maybe films we should do or parts of films we should look at or consider, or maybe you just want to talk about movies, let us know. Also, if you'd like to read a cold open for the podcast, maybe talking about a nostalgic or formative experience you had watching movies... Get in touch, and let's make that happen right away. You don't have to have come from a small town in the Ottawa Valley. But bonus points if you did. And then, if you're looking for something fun to do this upcoming weekend, why not check us out on the socials? Why not indeed? After all, we are on the Facebook. I love old movies, the podcast. La Instagram. At I love old movies, the podcast. El Twitter. At Ilom podcast and the good old-fashioned email i love old movies the podcast at gmail.com all one word and of course you should also do what all the cool kids do and that is pet the rock by that i mean head on over to petrockradio.ca listen to amazing local web-based radio programming with fantastic music and and previous episodes of our show broadcast once twice thrice a week Monday, Saturday, and Sunday. Come for the music, stay for the podcasts. We'll link that for you in the description. So, are you all ready to stow away aboard a steamship to America to find fame and fortune in the opera business? I've got my crazy fake beard right here. Hit the music. Director of A Night at the Opera is Sam Wood. After beginning a successful career as a real estate broker, Wood was first introduced to the film industry in 1906 in Southern California, where he began acting under the screen name Chad Applegate. Encouraged by the collapse of the real estate market a few years earlier, he started working as a production assistant and eventually became an assistant director to Cecil B. DeMille in 1914. 
1920, Wood directed his first film, Double Speed, at Paramount Pictures, which was the first of five films he worked on with Wallace Reed. Wood was extremely busy throughout the 20s and was constantly working, directing a total of three dozen films over the course of the decade. However, Wood transferred over to MGM in 1927, making films such as Rookies, Telling the World, and It's a Great Life. Although Wood continued his steady pace of films into the 1930s, his films were mostly of average quality, until the mid-1930s when he worked with the Marx Brothers. A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races picked up his career again and improved the quality of work he was getting. Even though Wood's career began winding down in the 40s, he was still able to turn out strong films, such as Goodbye Mr. Chips in 39, Kitty Foyle in 40, and For Whom the Bell Tolls in 1943. Ending his career with 82 directing credits, Wood died in 1949 at the age of 66. The writer is George S. Kaufman. After graduating high school and working odd jobs selling silks and ribbons, Kaufman started contributing to Franklin P. Adams' column in the New York Mail. This partnership led to Kaufman working at several different newspapers between 1912 and 1930. He made his Broadway debut with Someone in the House in 1918, and the majority of his career consisted of scripts written for various plays and musicals, which he continued to write throughout his career. Many of these plays were adapted for the screen, including Dinner at Eight, 1932, Stage Door, 1937, You Can't Take It With You, 1938, and The Dark Tower, 1938. Although rarely writing screenplays directly for films, his most notable would be A Night at the Opera in 1935. Later on in his career, Coffin spent from 1949 to 1952 as a panelist on the CBC TV series, This is Show Business. Ending his career with a total of 85 writing credits, Kaufman died in 1961 at the age of 71. Kitty Carlisle plays Rosa Castalia, one half of our romantic couple in this film. Carlisle was born in New Orleans to a wealthy family and was educated in Switzerland, France, and London at all of the best schools. She even studied acting at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and when she returned to the United States, she appeared in a series of films in the 1930s, most notably A Night at the Opera, which is certainly the film she's best remembered for. Many people think of Carlisle as a legendary film star, but she only ever made nine movies, the last of which was only a small cameo appearance playing herself in Catch Me If You Can. Carlisle, despite having a star on the Walk of Fame, made no movies between 1944 and 1987. She was better known as a theater actress, appearing in many plays from the 1930s right into the 2000s, but again, she was not extremely prolific, with most of her stage shows happening before 1949. Where Carlisle is best known is from her role as a panelist on game shows on television. She became completely connected to the show What's My Line, where she was a panelist on every version of the show ever produced. And she was also involved with shows like To Tell the Truth and Match Game. And it was in that role as a game show panelist through the 1960s and 70s that Carlisle became known to viewers all across America. Carlisle was deeply involved in the arts, dating no less than George Gershwin, and then becoming involved in arts patronage, serving as the chairperson of the New York State Council for the Arts for 20 years. 
As well, she was on the boards of various cultural institutions and children's charities, and she was made a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1997. After a life of performance, game show panelistism, and advocacy for the arts, Kitty Carlisle died in 2007 at the age of 96. Alan Jones plays Ricardo Baroni, the other half of the star-crossed couple. Jones got his start in Hollywood in 1935 with the film Reckless. It was in two films with the Marx Brothers, A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races, where he essentially played the romantic straight man taking over the role that Zeppo left behind when he left the group that really had Jones take off. He made many films in the 30s and 40s, almost all musicals, and was even a recording artist for RCA Victor. Some of his notable films included One Night in the Tropics in 1940, which was the film debut of Abbott and Costello. His film career essentially ended in 1945 with Senorita from the West, marking the end of a very busy 10-year span. He then made two films in the 1960s, and that was it for him. However, he did turn up on television and stage throughout the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. One particularly notable appearance for him was in an episode of The Love Boat, which also starred his son, Jack Jones. Jack Jones, of course, was a pop singer who sang the theme from The Love Boat. A commonly appearing actor in musicals in the late 30s and early 40s, Alan Jones died in 1992 at the age of 84. A Night at the Opera is an interesting film in the Marx Brothers catalog. It was the first film that they made for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer after leaving Paramount Pictures. It was also the first film they made after Zeppo left the act. Perhaps most notably, though, was the introduction of new producer, Irving Thalberg. I feel like we've talked about this dude before. Thalberg's influence led to a change in direction for the brothers' career. What he felt was that in the Paramount films, the Marx Brothers tended to come off as very unsympathetic. They would attack everyone in their films, in any variety of ways, physically, verbally, taking advantage of them. It didn't matter if their victims were good or bad. And this made the Marx Brothers hard to peg down. So Thalberg felt that if the brothers were cast as more benevolent characters, only doing their chaotic attacks on characters that were clearly villainous, this would make them more sympathetic and popular with the audience. But that's almost changing who they were. How did their fans react? Well, not all fans liked this. But A Night at the Opera was a huge hit. Filled with comedic bits that had been honed from time in their stage show, the movie was a showcase for everything the brothers did well. Verbal comedy, physical comedy, and music. The film wound up being a huge hit, not only in the moment, but standing the test of time, and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. As well it should be. Considered one of the best films the Marx Brothers ever made together, it's amazing to think that the first cut of this film was found to have no laughs in it by test audiences. How is that even possible? Well, the gags were all bits that had been done on stage, so they were filmed with a stage timing sensibility. That didn't work so well in film. This is a real testament to showing how reshoots and re-edits can make a film better. Exactly what didn't happen with Arsenic and Old Lace. You got it. Way to tie it together. What's the tail of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have a 7.8 on IMDb. Yeah, we do. The audience score is 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, mm -hmm. and the tomato meter is 97%. Yeah. The film won no awards mm. and can be rented on YouTube.
Abroad in Italy, wealthy American socialite Mrs. Claypool has fallen in with hapless business manager Otis P. Driftwood. She wants Driftwood to increase her profile, so he introduces her to Herman Gottlieb, the director of the New York Opera Company. Driftwood brokers a deal for Claypool to donate a lot of cash to the company so they can afford to hire the greatest tenor in the world, Rodolfo Laspari. Laspari has been romancing the soprano in his current show, Rosa Castaldi, but she is in love with Riccardo Baroni, who is also a great tenor, but is only in the chorus. Frustrated with his own career, Riccardo hires his friend Fiorello, Chico, to be his manager. At about this time, Laspari is trying to fire his personal dresser, Tommaso. This is Harpo. Laspari gets knocked out and is lying on the floor when Driftwood and Fiorello meet, and Fiorello introduces himself as the manager of the greatest tenor in the world. Driftwood assumes he means Laspari and winds up accidentally signing Ricardo to a contract to perform in New York. Not long after, everyone heads to New York on a passenger ship. Ricardo, Fiorello, and Tommaso have stowed away in Driftwood's luggage, and Driftwood attempts to get rid of them, but they insist on being fed, which leads to a hilarious scene in an overcrowded stateroom. That's got to be one of the funniest scenes I've ever watched. Yeah. I laugh every time I see it. <laughs> yeah. You even put a line about it in a play you wrote. It's just iconic. I know. Stateroom scene is a classic. We could do a whole episode just on that. Laspari has the stowaways caught, but they escape the brig and impersonate three famous aviators. By cutting off their beards and wearing them as some kind of ad hoc face wigs. But then the aviators are given a big welcome from the mayor and police and a press conference, and they are quickly exposed as imposters. The three are now being hunted by the police and hide in Driftwood's hotel room, which leads to some good hijinks. And Ricardo goes to see Rosa. But while he's with her, Laspari arrives and the men fight. And the fallout of all that is that both Rosa and Driftwood are fired by Gottlieb. This happens right as the opera company is about to debut their show of Il Travatore, so they all decide to sabotage the show, messing with everything that they possibly can. Their master stroke, however, is kidnapping Laspari. And this leaves Gottlieb with no choice but to cast Ricardo immediately, and he will only agree to perform if Rosa is put back in as well. Gottlieb agrees, since he has no choice. The audience totally loves Ricardo and Rosa, and the opera is a hit after all. I mean, the guys really ruined the show with their nonsense. Nonsense? Or improvements? Mm, good point. When Laspari returns to the stage for an encore, he has fruit thrown at him. So Rosa and Ricardo sing once more to an appreciative audience. Gottlieb makes sure the police won't bother the three stowaways, and Driftwood and Fiorello negotiate a new contract. The end. I love their movies. <laughs> it's going to be a bit hard to criticize this. More pros, less cons. Let's do it. Okay, so we don't actually rate films here on the show. There are no thumbs. There are no stars. We just talk about a few of the things that we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we make a recommendation as to whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, some of the dialogue bits in this film are just fantastic. Groucho riffing on Margaret Dumont is always good. And the contract scene? Oh my goodness. The Marx Brothers are always funniest when the lines are coming fast and hard and the banter is top-notch, and there's so much of that on display in this film. So much of what makes the dialogue good is not only the writing, but the timing and the delivery, and the boys are really on point in this film. 
two, the music number, Alone, on the dock before the ship sets sail. It's just a lovely song. It's wonderfully sung, and the scene is nicely shot and put together. The 30s were a great era for large-scale musicals, and the brothers, being great musicians themselves, frequently had big numbers in their films. Nicely, though, they largely stay out of the way on this one and let their supporting actors shine. Number three, the stateroom scene. Is it one of the funniest set pieces ever filmed? Maybe. Is it my all-time favorite? Absolutely. A masterclass of comedic conception with constant introduction of characters and items into a tiny space. It's simple, but brilliant. Take a small room, fill it with people and things. So great. Go find this scene on YouTube and watch it. It's amazing. Number four, the apartment scene with the moving beds. This is laugh out loud funny. Chaotic and mischievous for the sake of pure nonsense, scenes like this are timeless examples of how to get a laugh and how to milk a joke. And some of that is what the Marx Brothers did best. My cons. Okay, let's not get too carried away praising the music numbers. The Cozy Coza number on the boat? Totally not my cup of tea. Even in a Marx Brothers film, it's too illogical a setup. But it does lead to a Chico piano number and a Harpo Harp number... So, maybe it's not all bad. Number two, like with many of their films, it's easy to forget what this movie is even about. As we stumble from one hilarious scene to another, it's easy to overlook the romantic triangle subplot, or the rivalry between Driftwood and Gottlieb, or the endgame of the opening of the New York opera season, or Driftwood's gold-digging romance with Mrs. Claypool. It takes a lot of nonsense in order to get us to the titular night at the opera, but man, once we get there... The payoff is very worth the wait, and the circuitous path it took to arrive. Number three, that having been said, if you are even remotely opera-averse, there's a ton of it to get through at the end of the film. Here's the thing about Marx Brothers movies. They're absolutely their own genre. There's usually a high-concept setup, a whole bunch of nonsense, and then a payoff. And it's amazing. Even the worst Marx Brothers movies are better than a lot of the other comedies from that era. The brothers embody an independent spirit that takes great joy in sticking it to upper society, to etiquette, to authority, and to conformity. They are ostensibly low-culture comedy, but with such a clever satirical side and such a heavy reliance on the brilliance of the spoken word. Despite being an act that was around during the silent film era and Harpo being an excellent mime, the brothers' act would never have worked in silent films. They needed sound, so we could hear the puns, the riffs, the snarky one-liners. Groucho's endlessly deadpan delivery was made for sound cinema. It's impossible not to love their act in their films, at least for me, and for this legendary film comedy troupe, this film stands as one of their finest. Obviously, it gets a watch recommendation from me. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One. Margaret Dumont. Yeah. <laughs> I really love her performances. I love seeing her perform with the Marx Brothers. They have such great chemistry together and play off each other so well in their films. She's such a wonderful straight man to go against their wacky and large performances. Every time I see them together on screen, Dumont just seems so fed up with the Marx Brothers crap. She has a great screen presence, and I enjoy her in everything I see her in. 2. The final opera performance. It was really exciting. 
I felt like I had to do a double take every two minutes because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was so shocked when Harpo literally ran up one of the set pieces on stage. It was crazy. And Grocho helping out from the audience by yelling things was hilarious. They were this perfect little team messing up everything in the opera. And Loki kidnapping Laspari so that Rosa and Ricardo could perform? Amazing. <laughs> I also loved how determined Laspari was in the beginning to keep singing, despite set pieces covering him and Harpo swinging down from ropes. 3. The Boat Scene It's a classic. Probably one of the most well-known scenes from a Marx Brothers movie. People keep getting crammed into a tiny room until eventually they all fall out. It's absolutely hilarious. I love watching everyone try to find a way to balance somewhere in the room while still trying to do their job, like making the bed. Each person's entrance is also super unique and funny. One of my favorites is when the stylist or something comes up and says, do you want a manicure? And Croucher says, no, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, and I will never not love this scene. Now my cons. My first one is still half a pro, but regardless, the Marx Brothers music. Don't get me wrong, I love their music. They're also incredibly talented and such showy performers that I can't help but smile every time they pick up an instrument. But I don't think it was really necessary in this film. It came out of nowhere and was never addressed again after 10 minutes. I will never get sick of Chico playing the piano and Harpo playing the harp, but it just didn't add anything to the film. It didn't fit in. It felt like it was just added in because it's their thing, and it wasn't really needed in that particular moment. 2. The Plot I feel like this is sort of a reoccurring issue in Marx Brothers films. The main problem or story is introduced in the beginning, forgotten about for most of the film, and then it comes back up at the end for some sort of resolution. It's one of the Marx Brothers' things in their films, and it happens all the time. But it's kind of difficult to get invested in some of the characters when you lose the plot for a lot of the film. We just get random gags and comedic moments and scenes that don't have much to do with the actual storyline. I definitely forgot why they were all on a boat for a whole while. It was just jarring to then jump right back into the plot near the end after all the unrelated events beforehand. 3. The end. It was so sudden. The final sequence that happened at the opera was very fast-paced and energetic. It was jarring to then have the film just end right after Rose and Ricardo were hired, I would have expected maybe another scene or two so that everything had time to be wrapped up nicely and slowly. As it is, I was left wanting another five minutes of that film. What exactly happened to Groucho, Chico, and Harpo? Are they going to keep hanging out with Ricardo and doing stuff with the opera? Or are they just going to go off to some other town to cause mayhem? I just wish we got a smoother and more thoughtful ending. So, I have never tried to keep it a secret how much I adore the Marx Brothers. I love them, and I would watch their films on repeat if I could. 
They're funny, crazy, and an absolute blast to watch. So yes, definitely give this one, or even all of them, a watch. All right. And with that, we come once again to the end of an episode, and no surprise, double watch recommendation for A Night at the Opera. This film totally hit the spot. You can't go wrong with the Marx Brothers. This was a great request, and we were happy to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, about next week... Oh my gosh. It is our one-year anniversary show. August 4th is one year to the day when we released our first episode. How has it been a year? I do not know. But next week, we will for sure do something special. Hopefully a way to meaningfully thank you for coming on this ride with us. Maybe a review. Maybe. Maybe some guest spots. Who knows? Maybe some announcements. Mm. Who knows? We don't know, but there will be something. Can't wait. It's going to be excellent. But until then, be sure to watch more movies. And spread the word about our show. We're not a secret. And you don't need to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like tearing strips out of contracts as much as you do. You know, I thought you were going to say two boiled eggs. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I love those hard-boiled eggs. As much as Chico does. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. (laughs) Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.